Alright, you white motherfuckers. All eyes on me. This is the Average Years Podcast. We're back. Welcome back to all my Negroes and my colonizers. This is Mr. Fox of the I Refuse Podcast. Welcome to season four. We took an extended hiatus away from podcasting to gather ourselves, relax, read more, be more present. And like I always say, like I've always said this year, y'all just absolutely refuse to let me live my African-American life. So before we get into this episode, I want to do a couple of housekeeping items. Rest in peace to Angela Lansbury. Went to the club the night of her passing, and they didn't play any of her material. Homophobic. Shout out to Michael Itkiss for getting ahead of any possible scandal by doing an OnlyFans porn as a campaign ad under the guise of sex positivity. I feel some kind of way that I can't find the video. Like, I went to Reddit, I went to Twitter, I went through other stories, and I have not seen it. Maybe, like, maybe 12 seconds, but that's about it. Like, any OnlyFans preview, it's just 12 seconds, and there's nothing happening. Moving right along. America, America has a problem. I wanted to kick off this episode with... Lauren Smithfield's another update. So if you've been listening to the podcast this past year, I've done an episode, two episodes on Lauren Smithfield's last season. Uh, For those of you that are not familiar with the case, just joining the podcast and listening and everything, Lauren Smithfield was a black woman up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who last December 2021... She went on a date with a guy, Matthew LaFontaine, uh, through Bumble. So they go out, they have dinner, have a good time. They bring the date back to her apartment, right? Now, as the story goes, during the course of the evening, she leaves the apartment, I guess telling Matthew that she has to give her cousin some clothes. She comes back, goes into the bathroom. He claims that she's in the bathroom for 10 to 15 minutes, at which point she returns. At some point, she throws up. They're drinking, blah, 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 blah. And she, they go to sleep. At some point, 3 o'clock in the morning, He's awakened by her snoring. And by 6 a.m., 6.30 in the morning, he finds that blood is coming out of her nose and that she is not breathing. So when I initially reported it back in January February, it was right around Black History Month, that... The initial story, it didn't quite curl around for me. Uh, First of all, the police did not take Matthew into the precinct. Like, they questioned him for a little bit at the apartment complex and let him go. And after that, 
There was no follow-up or anything with the family, none of the police or the authorities. I don't even think property management or the uh, leasing office had reached out to our family. It wasn't until almost three weeks later when her family hadn't heard from her that one of her family members went by the apartment, saw a note on the door of her apartment that things started to gain traction. So here we are, October 17th, 2022, and this is where we are right now. So I'll I'll run through the full the full story and then where the family and her family members are at this point. So on December 11th, 2021, Lauren Smithfield went on a date with Matthew LaFontaine, a man she had met on the dating app Bumble. The two spent the evening drinking and playing games at her apartment in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But when LaFontaine woke up the next morning, Lauren was dead. He called the police who arrived on the scene and immediately cleared him of any wrongdoing. There was no thorough search of the apartment conducted, and although they found her ID and passport, they didn't notify her family that she had died. So the following day, Lauren's mother stopped by her daughter's apartment after becoming worried that she hadn't heard from her in two days. She only found out that her child was dead when Smith's field's landlord informed her. Since her death, her family has been protesting against the Bridgeport Police Department handling of the investigation. The accusations of misconduct, negligence, and inaction have some calling the case a textbook example of missing white woman syndrome. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, missing white woman syndrome is essentially when there is a similar case in town or in the vicinity uh, involving a white woman that is similar to what happens to a black woman or a black person and how all the energy, all this, all the spotlight, all contributions and gravitas into solving a case is put more into a case involving a white person than it is a black person. So she was, Lauren Smithfields was just 23 years old on December 11th when she invited him over to her Bridgeport, Connecticut apartment. She had dreams of becoming a physical therapist. A woman with a bubbling personality, Lauren loved her family, fashion, and travel. Uh, Matthew told police that he met Lauren on Bumble several days prior to their date. That night at her apartment, the two took tequila shots, played games, and were watching a movie when she stepped outside to give her brother, Lakeem Jetter, a basket of his clothes. Now, according to Rolling Stone, LaFound claimed that when Smith Fields returned, she went to the bathroom for about 10 to 15 minutes, then fell asleep on the couch while finishing the movie. He then proceeded to carry her to her bed, fall asleep beside her, and woke up around 3 a.m. to hear her snoring. When Matthew woke up again at 6.30 in the morning, Lauren was laying on her right side, blood was coming out of her right nostril onto the bed, and she was not breathing. 
He immediately called police who questioned him but determined that he played no role in her death. They took Lauren's phone, keys, passport, and over $1,300 in cash from her apartment and left without even trying to reach out to her family. Lauren's mother, who wouldn't learn about her death until more than 24 hours later, and it wasn't the police who told her. So we're going to go into why her family believes police mishandled her case. So two days after... Lauren's mother grew worried that she hadn't heard from her in a few days. Lauren was supposed to be hosting a Christmas dinner soon, and her mother hadn't been able to reach her to, to discuss the plans. Her mother decided to drive to the apartment to see if she was home. When her mother arrived, she found a note on the door that read, If you're looking for Lauren, call this number. Her mother called, and her daughter's landlord informed her that her daughter had been found dead the previous morning. My mother told the New York Times, I started panicking. All I could do was just stand there like if I was frozen. I could not believe what he was telling me, that my baby was gone. Her mother and her brother, who rode to the apartment with her, called the police detective on the case, Kevin Cronin, who said he'd be, he'd be there in 30 minutes. Didn't show up and hung up when they tried to call back. Lauren's mother told Rolling Stones how they spoke to us was disgusting, hanging up, hanging up the phone and telling us to stop calling him. Officer Cronin needs to lose his job. When the family was finally able to get in touch with the police again, they informed, informed them that Lauren had been on a date at the time of her death, but not to worry because he was a really nice guy and there was no need to investigate. Lauren decided that if police weren't going to thoroughly investigate her daughter's death, she would do it herself. Her mother went to Lauren's apartment and saw that while police had confiscated Lauren's cash and phone, there was no evidence collected. Additional evidence. She found a used condom, bloody sheets, and a mysterious pill. Despite the discoveries, police reportedly still failed to submit the evidence to forensics. And it wasn't until the end of January, over a month later, that they opened a criminal investigation into the Smithfield's death. A little over a month after Lauren died, the chief medical examiner released her cause of death as acute intoxication due to the combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydrothiazine, and alcohol, and the death was ruled accidental. Despite this, countless unanswered questions remain. Like, why had police failed to notify Lauren's family of her death? Why had the man who was with her when she died been immediately dismissed as a person of interest? And why had no real evidence been taken from the scene? These questions lead to Lauren's family to hire attorney Darnell Crossland and sue the city of Bridgeport for failing to properly investigate the circumstances surrounding the young woman's death. According to NPR, Crossland said, I've never seen a medical examiner conclude a mixture of drugs as an accident without knowing who provided the drugs or how it was ingested. Lauren didn't use drugs. Chantel Fields confirmed Crossland's statement saying she was not on drugs, she worked out every day, she was on a plant-based diet. Even her brother Jetter, who saw Lauren just hours before she died, noted that she seemed perfectly fine when they spoke. She looked normal, she didn't look sick, she didn't look tired, she didn't look drunk. 
I'm her second older brother. If I would have seen her drunk, I would have said, what are you doing? Why do you look like that? Crossan is convinced that the police have been racially insensitive throughout the investigation, and he is determined to get answers for Lauren's family. So, this is why Lauren Smithfield's case exemplifies missing white woman syndrome. Supporters of the lawsuit say the case is a clear example of missing white woman syndrome, or the practice of police and media focusing on cases involving young, attractive, wealthy white women while largely ignoring the same crimes when women of color are the victims. Lauren's family was determined to make sure her case wasn't forgotten. On January 23rd of this year, Lauren's 20, what would have been Lauren's 24th birthday, they marched outside of Bridgeport Mayor's office, released balloons, and sang happy birthday to their daughter, sister, niece, cousin, and friend. Soon after, on the 30th of January, Detective Conan was placed on paid administrative leave under internal affairs investigation. Mayor Joe Ganim had requested this through the city's de- deputy ch- police chief. In late May, Detective Cronin quietly returned to duty. According to the Connecticut Post, the police union confirmed the city decided not to arbitrate the case and reinstated him to full duty. Despite this, Lauren's family continues to fight for answers about her death and the investigation that followed. Crossland said, we will not stop until we get justice for Lauren and the thousands of black girls that go missing in this country every year. We owe them equal rights and justice regardless of race and why we won't stop fighting until we get it. So, a couple of reasons why this case doesn't curl quite all the way around for me was explained as I was reading the story back to you. Um, it's... Although the toxicology report states that she has, she had fentanyl in her system in addition to other things, I believe one of them was an anxiety medication, there is, you know, and for some people that could be all they need to hear. And with that, a lot of people could easily say, oh, well, you know, that it's a fentanyl overdose or it's, you know, she did it to herself and all this other stuff. For her brother, first of all, when I heard the story earlier this year, I was just like, was it her brother that gave that gave her whatever and caused her to do, you know, for this to happen? Um, but that quickly went out the window when there was no mention of the police questioning the brother. And it didn't, it wouldn't make any sense to me that he would be the one that gave her the drugs. But there's just something missing for me. If she doesn't take drugs, and her brother didn't give her the drugs, and she, the only person that's with her for an extended amount of time is her date, why not further investigate the guy that she was with the longest? And there was another thing about it that didn't quite wrap around for me. So, you know, you hear these kind of stories where things happen under the care or in close proximity to somebody 
else that is of sound mind and body, right? So Lauren threw up, because um, one of the initial stories was that she threw up, uh, that she had a seizure of some kind, that things went left, you know, after she came out of the bathroom. And I feel like the guy that she was with should have done more or got her to urgent care, got her checked out. Because there is no way for me personally that I'm with you most of the night, like the entire night, um, longer than anybody else that day and not not take it more seriously um if she was perfectly fine before she left the apartment and she was fine going to the bathroom why didn't the energy change your energy change after she came out of the bathroom and things just were not quite right like i feel like there isn't something in law or something in on the civil level that leaves the other person to some degree of culpability for not acting or being preventive in their measures when it comes to something like this. I mean, that's not to say that he 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 could administer or he's a doctor or anything, he could do something on site. But I feel like the moment something goes left, that something's not quite right, you should really step it up. Um, because you've heard of cases where, you know, you have people that are part of something that goes down, although they're not a witness to it, they still are on the hook and charged for, you know, facilitation of a crime or something, right? I saw some story a while back where there were like two homeless people that were watching a fire occur in a building that they were squatting in. And during the course of the fire, they did not call the police, nor did they stick around. They were ultimately put on, you know, on the hook for that fire. I mean, they didn't serve that much time, but it's just like mere seconds or mere minutes makes a difference. Um, I was having this, I was talking about this story over the weekend, the Lauren Smith Fields' latest update. And I was just like, A, the guy should have did more. B, the police, out of comfort, it's clear out of comfort, just didn't get the vibe that, you know, he was culpable, this, this Matthew guy was culpable. And just let him go. Like, This is Mr. Fox, the Art of Fuse podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode so far. Be sure to stick around to figure out where and how you can continue to support and follow the Art of Fuse podcast. Also, be sure to check out the Art of Fuse podcast after dark. 
in our third podcast under the Irish Views podcast on Brother called The Usual Suspects with Mr. Fox and Abstract Sagittarius. Now let's get back to the show. What the hell is happening? Like, usually they have no problem taking a person down to the precinct and drilling them for three to four hours. Well, you know, if it was us, that would be no problem. And, you know, you, you get they, they push you and they back you into a corner and you're like, you just want to go home. And they have you sign a false statement and all this other stuff. This guy, they must have held him less than an hour. I'm going to say 25 minutes, right? Probably asked two or three questions. It was easy, laid back, probably like two sailors out of a weekend pass. And they let him go. See, that comfort, that comfortability and that at easement is going to be a lot of people's downfall. Like, you want us to believe it's equal. You want us to believe that things are fair. But you don't even, it doesn't even rub the same way on both sides. Like, I just... I just can't with this. You know, it's just... When I think of this case, I think of Tamala Horsford. Now, that's a, that's a name I've mentioned on the podcast before. Where it's just like... Something, again, yet another story where it doesn't quite curl around for me. So... If you've never heard of that name before or that story, Tamala Horsford was a black married mom out of Georgia who went to a sleepover in Cummings, Georgia in 2018, right? She was the only black person there surrounded by white people, other wives, girlfriends, I think a couple of the girl, the ladies had boyfriends that were there or whatever. Goes to the sleepover. By the next morning, she's dead. Now, here's the thing. After it was all said and done, they claim... People at the party and the police or whatever claim that Miss Horsford fell off of the back deck and broke her neck and died. Here's the thing, though. It's 3 a.m. And, again, you know, aside from the toxicology or the medical examiner saying that she had X amount um, of alcohol. Her blood alcohol level was this amount. I'm like, something, again, something about this does not wrap all the way around for me. Because, again, it's like, if, let's say, in fact, she was drunk. I mean, it different tolerance level, you know, like how was she able if she still had that that blood alcohol level make it onto the back deck while everybody else is asleep 
and then just just fall off the back deck and like not nobody is concerned in the hours leading up to that because it's three in the morning like what what's the context here was she still drunk hours before did anybody check on her during the course of the sleepover before they went to bed did anybody make sure that she was okay because usually when i'm drunk and i've been to parties where other people are drunk that if it doesn't hit you right away it does hit you within a couple of hours which at that point you're not able to walk a straight line if it's as high as they claim that it is in this story that you're not able to walk around you're definitely noticeable especially at a party with like eight other people so here we are this story it came out in May of this year, right? So, Tamala Horsford died more than three years ago. Despite the multiple attempts to piece together what led up to her death, and in investigators closing the case, her father said it's still a puzzle with missing pieces. So, Eleven Alive investigates, analyzed hours of police interviews, hundreds of documents and scene photos, as well as a newly released independent autopsy done by her family. Two law enforcement agencies investigated how Horace Ford ended up dead in a friend's backyard. The Forsyth County Sheriff's Office responded to the 911 call on November 4, 2018. Two years later, the GBI reopened the case. Both agencies came to the same conclusion. That Horace Ford of Cumming, Georgia got drunk at the party, fell from a balcony after everyone went to sleep. According to the reports, her blood alcohol level was .238 nearly three times the legal limit. She had traces of marijuana and alparazolam, an anxiety medication in her system. The story is plausible, but her family said it only works in isolation from other facts. Here is where things take a turn, right? Once the case was ruled an accident and closed, 11 Alive investigators were able to request the same records. Horseford husband's attorney, Ralph Fernandez, also released for the first time the full independent autopsy performed by medical examiner Dr. Adele Shaker. I know this was a homicide, Fernandez said. The problem is I can't pin it on anybody because I don't have a badge. Michelle Graves wants to know why no one tried to call, tried to roll Horsford over to render CPR after discovering her outside. Not even the police who called off EMS, according to documents provided as part of the investigation. There was no effort whatsoever done to try to save this woman's life, Graves said. An ambulance didn't come, the homeowner recalled in a recorded interview with the police. We just saw her come out in a body bag. The only one that is documented in the initial investigation to have touched Horsford's body is the homeowner's boyfriend. He declared her dead after touching or lifting her leg, 
depending on which report you read. There are questions about the timeline, who did what and when. But investigators said however she died, it happened after 1.57 a.m. That's when, according to the security door alerts, the back door to the upstairs porch opened and never closed until her body was found. Witnesses said it makes sense because that's shortly after the homeowner and remaining guests went to bed. Horace Ford wanted one last cigarette. But the family has raised questions about several door alerts leading to the garage just minutes earlier. Perhaps one of the party goers cleaning up. According to the alerts, that door opened 17 minutes earlier at 1.40 a.m. and was also never closed. The person last to see Horace Hoare alive said they wanted to... They walked to the front door together. That matches with the front door chime at 1.47 a.m. She told police Horace Hoare gave her a hug and shut the door. But the woman's husband who came to pick her up said his wife came to the door alone. Both the GBI medical examiner's report and the independent autopsy list the cause of her death as multiple blunt force injuries. If you fall from the back deck and hit the ground once, why do you have multiple blunt force injuries? Dr. Shaker, the forensic pathologist that examined Horace Ford's body after the GBI said... The dislocated wrist in the GBI's report is actually a compound fracture. In the scene photos, one can see a bone sticking out near her right wrist. The injury is significant because there was very little blood found at the scene, raising questions about where the injury occurred and whether it happened before or after her death. What little blood can be found on Horace Ford's sleeve is on the opposite side of her injury. I think the cut in the wrist has, was post-mortem said her father. I don't think she died with that cut. I think it was put there after the fact. It's a claim Shaker supports calling the injury in this report post-mortem or after death. The GBI also lists a fracture in her spine. That's wild. Shaker said it isn't a fracture at all, but to him what's most important is what the GBI medical examiner did not find. There is no evidence of any significant injuries to the skull and bones, Fernandez said. In this report, Shaker wrote that the absence of bruising to broken bones in her skull raises the flag to the cause of death as falling from the second story of a building. The GBI did see a summary of Shaker's report but never received a full copy. Investigators asked for the document, but Fernandez said he didn't trust their intentions to simply hand it over. He pointed out that nothing stopped the GBI from issuing a subpoena to get it. Graves said beyond what could have be studied after the fact, there are red flags just looking at the crime scene. They showed us the mulch and the rocks in the mulch and showed where, oh, she tripped and fell over this little garden border, Graves explained, recalling a visit to the house where Horace Ford died after police had cleared the scene. The homeowner said in the conversation with police she was trying to help the family by letting them see where Horace Ford died. She shared her own theory of what happened. Initially, the homeowner was so convinced Horace Ford didn't fall from the top floor balcony that she went on social media to say so. In documents reviewed by Eleven Alive, the lead detective Michael Christian echoed that theory, telling the medical examiner the position of the body does not appear that she had fallen directly from the balcony, rather ground level. Even deputies at the scene seemed confused by her body position.
If you go to brace yourself with your left hand, and there ain't nothing to brace yourself with, you'd spin. You know what I'm saying? One deputy who responded to the scene com commented, It doesn't make sense. It's kind of like a nosedive. Horsford was found lying flat, face first, almost underneath the balcony that police later ruled she fell from. And the position seemed even more odd to the homeowner and her boyfriend because they insist both hands were by her side, palms up when they called 911. It's the weirdest thing. She was face down, but her arms were down like she just face planted is the best way I can describe it, the homeowner said. The GBI officer asked if Horsford's arms were down by her side. Yeah, by her side, palms up, the homeowner responds. Scene photos show her left arm is actually off to the side. It is bent and her palm is facing down with fingers curled under. Two years later, one of the deputies had a moment of clarity and a possible theory of what happened. In his initial report, he wrote, I saw what appeared to be a deceased female, so I went inside and started questioning people. He gave no indication he touched or interacted with Horseford's body. But when the GBI kept asking questions about Horsehort's arm, he said he did take her pulse and in the process may have moved her arm. You get all this information and you go, wait, nothing makes sense here. Fernandez said, there's so much here that touches or should touch everyone's heart. Then they talk about psychics. Psychics. Psychics and home detectives have offered up their own theories of what happened to the mother of five. After the initial case was closed, celebrities like Kim Kardashian, 50 Cent, and T.I. questioned the integrity of the investigation. They believe that despite the stereotypical yellow tape put up to protect the investigation, the scene was never treated like a crime. They point to the autopsy as one example. The GBI only took five photos, an unusually low number for a death investigation according to the experts 11 Alive consulted. According to the GBI policy, the number of photographs taken is at the discretion of the medical examiner and include the body bag, the decedent's remains, and, un and identification photograph and injuries. Fernandez argued Horsford's injuries alone should have warranted more than five photos, but what the GPI actually documented remains unknown. Fernandez says he's never seen them. The GPI told 11 Alive it is not subject to open records. Tamla was actually the person that they were investigating and not the perpetrators. While getting the statements, police did ask for photos and videos referenced to the party that night, but they didn't ask to take any of the devices to download the data, nor did deputies ever subpoena their phones for records. That didn't happen until the GBI got involved. By that time, records showed at least two people had new phones, and detectives learned text messages and pictures on some of the other devices were gone. I smell cover-up. Horse Ford's family suspects this is a new chapter in the county's history of racial, racial tensions. Horse Ford was the only black woman at the party and the only one who wound up dead. In 1912, the county forced out all of its black residents. Today, only 4% of the county's population is black, according to U.S. Census data. Her family said they believe this impacted the way deputies viewed the scene. The lead investigator on the case, Michael Christian, is accused of calling Horsford the porch lady and making derogatory racial remarks. I mean, that's horrific, said Fernandez. The racist, bigoted, sarcastic, funny way of this sick son of an expletive. I'm sure he said bitch. Christian says comments were taken out of context and other deputies involved denied and have been offended by the 
accusation. Race aside, the officers who responded had connection with some of the people inside the house. The man who spoke with police on the 911 call was a former probation officer who at the time worked in the county's court system. On the body camera audio, one can hear one of the deputies walking another deputy through the different people at the scene. He mentions Jose Barrera. We've got some mutual friends together. I've known Jose for a while. We're friends, the deputies heard saying on the video. One can also hear another woman from the party express concerns about getting to her new job on time. After explaining where she works, the deputy tells her, I'm sure you're good because your boss is my wife. The GBI also caught a few of the partygoers in what appears to be a series of lies. One woman diagnosed with severe anxiety told police that her medication made it impossible for her to lie and that she is so dependent on her anxiety medication she wore a necklace with Xanax in it. She told investigators she understood it was a controlled substance and would never share it with anyone. Yet, once the GPS subpoenaed the phones and started reading through the text messages, they found evidence that the woman had indeed shared some type of medication at least twice with her friends prior to the party and with one friend on the day of Horace Ford's death. When confronted, the woman admitted it was true but insisted she only shared her drugs because she knew the women well. She did not know Horace Ford. Horace Ford had, had an... Xanax in her system the night she died. No one knows why. The lead investigator, Michael Christian, lost his certification to work as a police officer. The high-profile nature of Horace Ford's death led several women to come forward accusing Christian of sharing scene photos and confidential information about this and other cases with them. The homeowner's boyfriend also lost his job at the courthouse after he was accused of inappropriately accessing the case file related to Horsford's death and Graves' personal information. An internal investigation ruled the first claim unfounded, but he was still fired from his job at the courthouse. The court administrator would only say she had lost confidence in his ability to perform his duties. As far as Horsford's case is closed, and three years later there are no plans to charge anyone with her death. Isn't that a blip like what and people want to claim that racism is not alive and well and that discrimination and prejudice is not alive and well for people after the fact to try to cover up things and it from what I glean, when somebody digs for another person's personal information, that they plan to intimidate this person that is on their ass to try to silence them, bring harm, be threatening to them. Because they're guilty, and this is happening in Georgia, It's 2022, and it just blows my mind that of the eight people she in that house, you know, people are connected to the police and the courthouse, and, you know, he, it's not uncommon for one hand to wash the other, and... It starts from the moment the phone call is made, 
Like, why was EMS called off? And why do you have so many people walking through that house? And the people, the other adults that were there, trying to play like they don't know what happened, what went on. Like, nobody's speaking on the contacts. Nobody's... It's very sus. And then after that, you some of the people make a concerted effort to try to cover things up. Text messages are missing. People get new phones. People aren't cooperating. And you have somebody trying to obtain information on Michelle Graves, the woman who is making the moves and doing the going the extra step to investigate. Because, you know, in certain states, in certain cities, Bridgeport, Connecticut being one, and clearly Forsyth County being the other, they don't give a fuck about us. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And racism and Jim Crow and the the burning down of Black Wall Street wasn't that long ago. It's not that racism is dead. It's just people are trying hard to mask it. And making making it more nuanced. So moving on to our next segment. Come outside. We won't jump you. I have one question for Nicki Minaj. What is you doing? Like... What, what what's going on? So, in the last couple of days, you know the the Grammy submissions or eligibility eligibility announcements were made, and Nicki Minaj Nicki Minaj felt some kind of way. That her song, Super Freaky Girl, was moved out of the rap category and put into the pop category, right? Which, I would be pissed too. Even though it's it's not the best rap song. Um, it's, it's perfectly justifiable for her to feel some kind of way. I would too. Because you're going to put possibly put that song in a category with Adele and Beyonce, and Doja Cat, and Harry Styles, and, you know, basically mainstream white artists who nine times out of ten will never lose. Um, you know, Doja Cat is the, is the middle ground uh, exception where it's like, they they put her they can put her in different categories cuz she she makes the music that's like undefinable but for Nicki Minaj it's like it's you're pop, you're more popular than you are a rapper right and 
unfortunately, since your debut, you haven't, you're more associated with the popular side, where it's like you do the sing-songy thing, and you're not known for, like, a chaotic flow, uh, a fast rhythm, something that brings to mind, like, freestyle rapping or, you know, 16 bars going back and forth. While I give credence to the reality that she is being blackballed, um, they're, they're intentionally setting her up to fail yet again, I would have kept my mouth shut, personally. Um, when you're in an industry where the politics is clear, like you really, at this point, either just have to accept it or just ignored or act like it's not there because it's a system and a machine that's been in play longer than any of us have been alive and it's not good PR it's not um not good juju so to speak for you to be this venomous um your beef is with the Recording Academy. I don't know how far that'll get you. Um, because I believe Grammy nominations or even mentions of eligibility, it's really up to your label um, to submit on your behalf, if I'm not mistaken. I've never listened to Super Freaky Girl. Um, personally, Nicki Minaj should have got Grammys um, for looking ass, and especially for the pink print. While that's all good and well, for her, Nicki Minaj, to loop in Lotto, like, publicly point out Lotto in a tweet to speak up or defend you, which, in hindsight, was a setup that's you feel that because she's a new artist um, and that the the politics of the academy around you know the politics is they'll they'll give it to a new artist for a song that's outside the eligibility period, which it it is. Um, Big energy came out in twenty twenty one. And I remember the first live performance I saw of Lotto performing this song. I was like, I don't know. But I think what revitalized the song was the Mariah Carey remix. And I think that's a huge reason why she got put into the category. Um, which is, it's funny because, again, you're moving, you're moving the goalposts to accommodate this girl. And I like Lotto. Like, she gives great interviews. She is... has a strong business mind. She gives great energy, and she's a lot of fun. And she's very entertaining. Like, her stage presence has gotten better over the past uh, two, one or two years since that song first dropped. Um, and it's like... There aren't too many female rappers at this point 
that are like taking up the stratosphere. Um, Cardi Cardi B is kind of laying low. Megan Thee Stallion is holding it down pretty pretty decently. Um, although Traumazine didn't really move me one way or, or another. Um, it's just one of those things where it's like you are at a point where you're you you just have to maintain your legacy at this point. I give Nikki her roses and everything for what she's done to expand the face of rap and hip hop. Not everything she releases or does moves me, but some of her stuff is actually pretty imaginative and pretty crazy, which is good. Like you you wanna you wanna keep the shit entertaining, and she does that. However, it's like some of what's been said about her just the last five years is starting to look like with this latest antic that it's becoming true. It's, it's very much true. Um, for you to call somebody out who's minding her business and then proceed... After you got a response out of this girl, Lotto, that you probably wasn't prepared for, you decide to expose her with uh, private DMs where she, once upon a time, requested you to hop on a song with her. Really didn't go anywhere. You want to put out this narrative that... You know, the the girls only want to use you for a feature, but not show love otherwise. And it's like, that's a two-way street. Like, staying the reason, like, you could really benefit from being more positive and being more outwardly appreciative to counteract the, the bad PR. You know, Jennifer Hugh, you being married to uh, a sexual predator, you being married to a person, a convict, um, you being married to allegedly a child predator. And you don't think maybe you should switch it up a little bit? Like, you've done the time, right? You've, you've been good for about 10 years. You've largely ignored, like, what the other rap girls have been saying about you. Yet, you are still having this energy like you're entitled to something from the Grammys. Like, I remember back in 2012, it was 2011 or 2012 Grammys, where Nicki Minaj was in the same category as Watch the Throne, came... Kanye and Jay-Z, right? She, one of her songs from her debut was in the category with Otis. When she saw that Otis won, she threw a little temper tantrum in her chair, and I was just like, girl, there'll, there'll be other times. And, you know, aside from the fact that Kanye and Jay-Z are more of a rapper than Nicki Minaj, they also are good personalities. Well, Kanye was once upon a time. 
like it's not only about the music like you have to also have a good image be positive like stay off of social media if you're not going to be decent or you know be the queen that you claim to be and have some sort of class and some sort of decor, you know, decorum, just etiquette where it's like you, anything that's private, DMs, a conversation, a voicemail, keep it private. Because it's a, it's a very weird flex where, where you're picking on somebody, you're targeting somebody that's just having a great year. And you're putting the other person in the position to respond. Lotto didn't have to respond. And even though she did, it wasn't that bad. But clearly that was a setup for you to change the narrative, be defensive, and play the victim. Like, it's not on Lotto to speak up for you. If anything, you could stand at this point to do more for the girls that are coming up behind you. People that are influenced. But again, you are doing a full circle moment where you're revisiting this toxic persona that up until this point, to some degree, was just hearsay. Like, you know, Remy Ma would say stuff, has said stuff, Lil' Kim has said stuff, but we didn't think, oh no, that can't be Nikki. Like... I, for one, don't go off of hearsay, but girl, like, this is not giving what you thought it would give, and it's unfortunate because it's like, every year, every two years, every three years, we just talk about how there's no community, there's no togetherness, there's just no positivity in hip-hop, like, the guys, stupid, the beefs get stupid, like, social media just makes the beef a circus at this point. But with women, it's like, we they just can't help but be feel insecure and feel like they should be the only ones. And it's like, you know, Nikki is in her 40s, and it's clear that she feels some kind of way that there are other girls, younger girls, that are doing it way big and getting a lot of opportunities. They are bringing back the bars. They're bringing back the style. They're bringing it all. Like, and they're everywhere. Like, Megan Thee Stallion has been in a Marvel show, has been on SNL, not only as part of the show, but also hosting as well. And I, it wouldn't be surprising to me if she gets, like, nominated for an Emmy for that. Because she's hella funny. Everywhere. Like, we're getting cosmetics deals. We're getting, like, Coachella performances. We're getting Netflix specials. And Nikki's at home with her baby. And her convict husband. And this dark cloud over her. And to some degree, I feel like she is lashing out. But unfortunately... All of this toxic energy, all this negativity is soiling the industry and soiling rap and 
the perception. It's like you can you couldn't handle it that the girl matched your energy, and it's clear because you had to release private shit that was not even relevant. It was like okay, the girl asked you to hop on a song, and that was that. She still did the album. She got a Mariah Carey remix. She's been having one hell of a year, and you can't handle it. And you're too old to be doing this. Way too old. Um, you could be the most knowledgeable person as far as why is this song in this category when it's clearly pop, but it wins for rap, and all the politics and everything. Why don't you put that energy into making another solid body body of work because it's been almost 10 years and why don't you let the girls have their things you know you could have definitely taken the time between queen and whatever the next studio album will be to rehab your image as somebody that is not above helping these younger girls out and being more about community like you have never heard of Lil Kim, Left Eye, Debrat, well Debrat, any of the other girl rap girls before you run into an issue it's like you can be factual and be right about the politics right without throwing other girls under the bus She had me up until that point. And I was just like, this sounds oddly familiar. Like, this is, is this what it's like when you have nothing but free time? Do one quick story time, real fast. So, this episode will be a, is about class, and one thing is, you know, when you're living in an apartment or you have a landlord situation, and there is a health and safety issue, like, we saw, you know, we lived here, we've been living here a little over a year, and recently we saw a mouse, and... The response to to it from the landlord it was just like wh why are you being so lax about it and you brought back up like you want to do or suggest cheaper options instead of just getting a exterminator and you want to complain and talk about oh you know, you're downtown and all this other stuff. Lady, I'm from Baltimore. I know how this goes. And it's like, it's these kind of situations that make you think, well, there's more to being a landlord than collecting a check every month. Like, and it's on, it's your responsibility to ensure the health and safety of your tenants. Which, by the way, you have about five of them. And it makes you wonder, like, in a time where they want three times the income, you still have landlords out here that just don't give a damn. 
And it has nothing to do with you being older and being tired and working five days a week. You still have a responsibility and you make a lot of money hand over fist for you to be having this attitude. Um, I hope we will be paying attention to this as time goes on. This is Mr. Fox, the I Refuse Podcast. Stay tuned, follow, subscribe wherever you see the I Refuse Podcast, and I am out. Hey, thank you for listening to another exciting episode from the I Refuse Podcast. We enjoyed you listening. Be sure to stay tuned, follow, and subscribe wherever you see the I Refuse Podcast. Also, don't forget that we have the I Refuse Podcast After Dark, and we also have another podcast called Usual Suspects with Mr. Fox and Abstract Sagittarius. Be sure to find us on Twitter at I Refuse Podcast, on Instagram at I Refuse Podcast, underscore between the words, and on Facebook with the same at I Refuse Podcast, underscore between the words. We also have a blog on WordPress that we update routinely. Across the three podcasts, be sure to stay tuned for there will be monthly episodes as well as weekly episodes. We also have a YouTube channel, I Refuse Podcast. Be sure to look for us and follow the link in our profile as we continue with the mess as the earth is sinking into the ocean and hell is becoming a sardine can. We at the I Refuse Podcast are here to educate, inform, and of course entertain. We will have amazing guests on season four of the I Refuse Podcast from all walks of life to discuss, inform, and be vulnerable with you guys and also have a good kiki. This is Mr. Fox, the I Refuse podcast. Thank you for refusing with us.